Before that, you should be now. Let's give the band a big, big, big hand. Thank you so much, you guys. Hey, great to see all of you here today. If by some chance you're visiting, my name's Scott, and I have the privilege of helping out as we uh, preach God's word here at South Fellowship before uh, we eventually here in the next few months, Lord willing, hire a new senior pastor. We are in the process of going through the Gospel of Mark and so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to cover a lot of territory in Mark chapter 5. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your scripture there. I'll be reading along as we go. Mark chapter 5. Before we uh, get into this text, I'm going to ask you to join your hearts together with me in prayer. Father, we've gathered together today to rejoice in you and worship you and bless you. Lord, I thank you for every person that is here today. Thank you for your church. Lord, I want to pray for your church globally today, whether it's in Japan or Jakarta, whether it's in Austria or Argentina. We think of the church in the United States, whether it's in Oregon or Ohio. We think of the church here in Denver and Englewood and Littleton. Lord, we pray that you would bless your church, that you would use her to extend the good news of the gospel and expand your kingdom of grace and love. Lord, we also thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us about you and what you're doing. And so as we look into this text this morning out of Mark's gospel, we pray that you might enlighten our minds, Lord, that by your grace you might touch our hearts that we might see more of you. And we ask this now in the great and the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. In August of 2000, a Russian submarine named the Kursk went down in the Barents Sea. Uh, divers were sent down by the government to assess the situation to determine if anyone had survived. As the divers were circling the sub, they heard a pinging sound, and they put their heads as close as they possibly could to the hull. The pinging was Morse code coming from some men inside the sub who had gone to the very back where there was still some air. Uh, the divers heard a phrase, and then they interpreted it. That phrase was composed of four words. Is there any hope? Uh, that's probably a question that everybody in this room this morning has asked at one time or another. 
When we find ourselves in situations where we feel boxed in, out of control, emotionally desperate, we ask, is there any hope? Now, maybe you keep giving into a persistent sin that keeps cropping up in your life, and you feel like, I'm never ever going to gain any victory in that area, and you wonder, is there any hope? Maybe some of you work in a toxic environment, and you have no voice, no influence, no ability to affect any positive change. Every day at work, it's a battle against despair, and you wonder, is this ever going to change? Uh, maybe you have a big tangle in your marriage or in your family. Maybe some other relational difficulty. And in the midst of your pain, you keep hoping for some sign of repentance, some sign of restoration, some sign of reconciliation. Believe me, I say this in all truthfulness, at different points in my life, I've been in all of those situations, and I suspect that many of you here have as well. Maybe this morning, you're in some other kind of desperate situation, and you keep banging away, asking, is there any hope? Well, that's exactly why we want to hear from the Holy Spirit this morning as he talks to us through his inspired word in Mark chapter 5. Uh, let's begin at verse 1. The apostle tells us that they, that is Jesus and his guys, went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat... A man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Uh, this man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night among the tombs and in the hills... He'd cry out, and he'd cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, in God's name? Don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Uh, at the end of Mark chapter 4, we're told that uh, Jesus and his disciples had crossed the Sea of Galilee to the eastern end of that lake, and they landed in this region here known as the Gerasenes. This was an area that was filled with limestone caves and rock formations, Apparently, it functioned as something of a graveyard as well. And it was, it was an area that was inhabited primarily uh, by Gentiles. And therefore, this was not an area that Jews in general or rabbis in particular were prone to visit. But Jesus intentionally goes there with his guys 
because he is always intent on extending the kingdom of God. And as they step out of the boat onto the shore, they encounter this man who was demon-possessed. And Mark makes it really, really clear that this guy was scary and pitiful. I mean, he's outrageously strong, like, like the Incredible Hulk. I mean, he breaks chains at a whim, and then he lives among the tombs. But it's really, really clear that he is also in deep emotional and spiritual pain. He cuts and slashes himself with rocks. No one in that area could do anything to help him. None of them wanted to because he was clearly beyond their capacity to render him any kind of aid whatsoever. And this man all the time is crying out in need because he's in a horribly desperate situation. But when he sees Jesus from a distance, he runs up to him. He falls in front of the Lord on his knees, and then he shouts at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Son of the Most High God? Don't torture me. And then Jesus asks his name, and he replies, Legion, for we are many. Now, a legion in the Roman army was composed of somewhere between 5,000 and 6,000 soldiers. So when the demon says we are legion, that's clearly an understatement. Uh, look at what happens next in verses 11 through 13. It says a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And Jesus gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out, and they went into the pigs. And the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the sweet, steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Well, Mark then goes on in the following paragraph to tell us that all the people tending the pigs ran off. They go and tell everybody in the region around them what happened. All these people come running to Jesus. They see the formerly demon-possessed man. He's sitting there, and now he's clothed. He's in his right mind, which apparently scares the crud out of them. And they plead for Jesus to leave. An older pastor that I once heard of said that he was asked... What are the three most frequent questions that have ever been posed to you in your 50 years of ministry? And he thought for a moment and he said, what happens when you die? Can I lose my salvation? And what's the deal with the pigs? <laughs> well, some of you here may be Wondering the exact same thing, and that's, that's perfectly understandable. But I want us to focus on Mark's intent in this portion of the narrative. Uh, Mark is showing us that there are forces of darkness in our fallen world that seek to hurt us, oppress us, and do absolutely everything in their power they can to destroy us. Now, Scripture makes clear that as human beings, we are very, very complex spiritual and material creatures 
who are composed of minds and wills and emotions and bodies. But unfortunately, every part of our being has been tainted and corrupted by sin. And therefore, what that means is that all of us in certain places in our lives, and it differs from person to person, all of us have places in our lives where we are susceptible to the demonic. And sometimes if the demonic gets a hold in our life, it can manifest itself in addictions and obsessions and negative behavioral tendencies. In his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis took a really, really good look at his life before his conversion. And he said, there I found a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. Uh, but Lewis eventually became a follower of Jesus. He became a Christian. And so over time, the Lord began to heal him of those lusts, ambitions, fears, and hatreds. And the reason the Lord did that is because the Lord is the one who has the power to fix us and what's wrong with the broken world that we live in. Just like he did with the demoniac here in Mark 5. Now, I want to be really, really clear on something here because I think it's very, very important. Christians are not what we call dualists. We do not believe that God and Satan are the same or that they have the same power or that they are in any way equal. God runs the universe. He's all-powerful. Satan is a fallen angel who leads other demons. And in the present fallen world, for his own purposes, God allows them to operate in certain realms. But scripture in general, and in this text in particular, Mark wants us to know that the Lord always has power over the demonic. I know the analogy breaks down, but it still makes the point. It would be as if we were to get Pat Mahomes to come to Denver and play in the local junior high football league. He would completely and totally dominate the situation. Well, in this text, Marx makes it perfectly clear that Jesus has that kind of dominating power over the demonic. He has the heart, he has the power to bring us to places of emotional and spiritual health, and that's why we always want to put our hope in him. And that's not all. Jesus also has the power to heal disease. Look at the next story that comes up in this chapter, starting in verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers or leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little girl's dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Now, having left the area of the Gerasenes, they get in the boat and they go back to the western side of the Sea of Galilee and they land in the city there that's Capernaum, which was kind of Jesus' base of operations. 
And immediately, once again, when they, when they get there, this man named Jairus, highly committed Jew, a man who was a leader in the local synagogue, a man who's highly respected in the community, comes up to Jesus, and he's desperate because his daughter's really, really sick. If you've ever had a kid, you've ever had a spouse, you've ever had a parent, you've ever had a friend who was that sick, in that desperate a situation, you know exactly how Jairus felt. So he falls at Jesus' feet. He begs him to come and heal his daughter, and Jesus obliges. But suddenly, the story takes a surprising turn. Look at verses 24 to 29. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman who was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up, and she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd, and she touched his cloak because she thought, well, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Now, in Jewish culture, this woman had been marginalized because of whatever the illness was that she was dealing with. It caused her to hemorrhage and bleed. And obviously, this would have been visible publicly and nobody wanted to be around her. And Mark tells us that she had no luck with doctors and now she's out of money. In social, cultural, and economic terms, she's the very opposite of Jairus. But just like him, she's in this desperate situation. She's out of op options. But she genuinely believes that Jesus, who she's heard is the Messiah, has power to heal her. And so she reaches out to touch his robe. And as she does so, she's healed. And then Mark, in verses 30 to 31, says that Jesus realizes that the power has gone out from him. And he looks around and he says to the guys, hey, hey, do you know who touched me? And they go, come on, Jesus. Look at all the people around you. Get with the program here a little bit. We don't know who touched you. But the woman's there. She's right there. And she hears that conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And so she comes forward. In verses 33 and 34, it says, then the woman came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, the fact that this woman had had some bad luck with doctors, but then it's miraculously healed by Christ has led some people to interpret texts like this as clear indications that we don't need doctors or nurses or medicines. Uh, just in case you've been tempted to think that, friends, that's wrong. We always need great docs, great nurses, great meds, hospitals, ERs, and urgent care facilities because we're these frail creatures who can get really, really sick, as is evidenced by the coronavirus that's now coming out of China. Mark's intent in this story is not to communicate 
that the medical profession is bogus. He's simply telling us that her problems, her medical issues were beyond the capacity of the doctors of that era to help her. And so she turned to Jesus because she rightly believed that he had the power to heal her disease. Now, her actions in this text show us something really, really, really important about the spiritual life and about life in general. Friends, it's never ever about the size or the strength of our hope or our faith. It's always about the object of our hope and our faith that makes the difference in life. Let me illustrate this. Let's say you come to a frozen lake and you hope it's not frozen. You hope it's not frozen. And the reality is it's really, really, really frozen. Well, you can have little hope or little faith, but if it's really frozen and the ice is thick, you can walk all the way across that lake and you're going to be just fine. Or let's say you come to the lake and you have huge hope, huge faith that it's frozen, but the ice is thin. You could break through and drown. It's not the amount of faith or hope that matters. It's the object of our faith and hope that matters. The Bible never ever says believe. It always says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because he's the only one who can save us. The Bible never ever says, yeah, just have faith. Just have faith. No, it always says have faith in the sovereign God who's revealed himself in Jesus because he's the only one who can ultimately help us. See, after years and years and years of suffering, this poor little woman saw Jesus as her only hope. And so in faith, she reaches out and she touches his robe and she was healed because he's the one who's got the power to fix what's wrong with us and our broken world. He has the power to heal us of our diseases. And he can do that if he wants miraculously in a moment. Or he can do that providentially over time through good medical care and medicines. Because he's God. He runs the universe. And he is our only hope. See, Mark wants us to know in this narrative that Jesus has all power over the demonic, and he's got all power over disease. And he also has power over our greatest enemy of all. Look again at the story starting in verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, in other words, he's in this dialogue with the disciples. Some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, your daughter's dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Can you imagine how Jairus would have felt at that moment? He must have thought, Jesus, if you hadn't delayed to help this woman, my daughter might still be alive. Jesus, why did you stop? She's been sick for years. Jesus, it's too late. She's dead. Talk about desperation. 
talk about despair. But look how Jesus responds, verses 36 and following. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He didn't let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child's not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, this is Aramaic, Talitha kum, which means little girl. I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and she began to walk around. She was about 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, in Jewish culture, there was this common practice that they had of public lament surrounding the, the event of death. And oftentimes, what would happen is these professional mourners would show up, and they'd make this big commotion and this big scene over the death of an individual. But then Jesus arrives at Jairus' house, and he tells them, hey, the little girl isn't dead. And they laugh at Jesus. They know she's dead. They've seen death hundreds of times in their lives. But then he goes into the room where her recently deceased body's laying. He gently touches her hand. And he raises her. He resurrects her from the dead. Amazing, magnificent, fantastic. She's dead, but now she's alive because Jesus has power over our last great enemy, which is death. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, had a lot of highs and a lot of lows during his life. And one of the lowest points came when his 14-year-old daughter, Magdalena, was stricken with the plague. One of his friends wrote this about him. He said, brokenhearted, Luther knelt beside her bed and begged God to release her from the pain. But when she died and the carpenters were nailing down the lid on her coffin, Luther cried out, hammer away, hammer away. On resurrection day, she'll rise again. Friends, that's true for every person in this room if we know Jesus. Because the greatest promise of the Christian faith is that Jesus died on that Roman execution rack for our sins, and then he physically, literally rose from the dead in order to come back and get us again and give us a resurrected body that will live forever. He's the one person in heaven and earth who has all the power over the forces of darkness, over disease, and over death, which afflicts us all. And because of that, because of that, there is always hope in him. There's hope that he'll use his wonderful, magnetic, tremendous power to fix what's wrong with us and fix what's wrong with our broken world. Now, let me be really, really honest with you here. I don't want to have a Pollyanna faith. I don't want to preach a Pollyanna faith. I don't want you to have a Pollyanna faith. 
And sometimes when we come to stories like this in the Bible, it's easy to think, well, if I just pray this prayer or whatever, everything's going to be okay. No, 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 no. What I want us to have is a faith that's rooted in the truth of Scripture and that's rooted in the reality of life. And so whenever I come to the Gospels and I see Jesus performing miracles like these, it always raises questions in my mind. Maybe, maybe, maybe it raises some questions for you as well. So what I want to do is pose three questions that I wrestle with in terms of dealing with episodes like this and then answer each of those questions. Here's the first question I always wrestle with when I come across the miraculous in Jesus' ministry. Uh, why doesn't he demonstrate his miraculous power in our context like he did in Mark chapter 5? Well, depending on what you define as a miracle, Jesus only performed 36 miracles in his public ministry. And as you see in the very last portion of this narrative, he always downplayed them. See, the miracles revealed his divine power, but one of the things you see in the Bible, whether it's in Exodus, whether, where there are miracles, whether it's in First and Second King, where, Kings, where there are a lot of miracles, and especially in the ministry of Jesus, where there are miracles, miracles never, ever increase people's faith. I mean, how do the people in the garrisons respond when Jesus heals the demoniac? The guy's been... The guy's been wild out there in the wilderness forever, and now he's clothed and he's in his right mind and he's healthy. How do they respond? Jesus, leave us. Leave us. Get out of here. See, Jesus did perform miracles. They really happened. And Jesus can perform miracles today. But they're few, and they're far between, despite what some people want to say. And that's why we call them miracles. Second question that I wrestle with. Given that some of us here today might be wrestling with a really, really difficult issue. How do Jesus' actions in this narrative help us? Well, to begin to answer that, let me reference... C.S. Lewis's great book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is the first volume in the Chronicles of Narnia. If you've ever read that, you know that as the children enter Narnia, it's winter but never Christmas, kind of like today outside. And the white witch is in control of Narnia. But as they come in, they meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And as they get together with the beavers, they find out that Aslan, the great lion, who's the Christ figure, has entered Narnia, and he's going to change it. He's going to fix it. He's going to redeem it. And so they have this conversation with the beavers. And the beavers tell them about Aslan. And they say, tell us about Aslan. And they say, he's the great lion. He's the son of the king who lives beyond the sea. He's incredible. And Lucy, one of the little girls, says, is, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe. He's a lion. Of course he's not safe, but he is Good. 
Friends, regardless of our issues, regardless of our situations, regardless of our pain and suffering, let's run to Jesus, let's pray to Jesus, let's live for Jesus, let's put all of our hope in Jesus and then believe and wait on Jesus. Remembering that's exactly what he asked Jairus to do. As hard as that is because he is good. He might act quickly. He might not act for a long time. He may act through some other people. He may act this way or this way or that way. Either in us or in our situation or through others. He will act as he sees fit because he is not a safe, tame lion. But let's never, ever lose hope in him because he's the one. He's the one who has power to fix what's wrong with us in a broken world. Third question. What does Jesus' power over the forces of darkness and disease and death mean for us as a church? Especially as we leave here today and we go back to our families and back to our schools and our neighborhoods and our jobs and our communities. Well, it's really, really clear as you look at the Gospels, Jesus always uses his divine power to help people because people are really, really important to him. He also uses his divine power to demonstrate the fact that he is, as the demon said, the Holy Son of God. But as we look at Jesus' exercise of the miraculous in the Gospels, it's really clear that the main reason he does that is to reveal the nature of God's kingdom. Jesus is revealing what the world was supposed to look like, what it did look like back in Eden. He is revealing what he wants the world to look like. He is revealing what, when he returns, the world will look like. There'll be no disease, no death, nothing about the demonic, because the kingdom will have arrived. That means that if you and I are his disciples, if we're his followers, if we claim the name Christian, that means we live out the values of the kingdom. It means we treat our spouses and our kids and our families with love and respect and grace. Those are kingdom values. It means that when we offer a word of kindness to someone who's hurting or do a good deed to a stranger or a fellow student or a colleague at work who's in need, we're living out the values of the kingdom. It means that when we leverage our resources to serve our community or our city or our world, God is using that to advance the kingdom. It means that when we gather here at South Fellowship on Sunday and we invite other people to join us as we worship the resurrected Jesus, we're experiencing in some way or another the power of God's kingdom where the demonic and disease and death will no longer exist. All of you have seen the great movie Star Wars. And you remember that in the first few minutes of the original Star Wars, Princess Leia is working on behalf of the rebellion, and she's got the plans to the Death Star. But Darth Vader 
and the Imperial stormtroopers have boarded her ship and they're going to capture her. So what she does is she finds the little droid R2-D2 and she sits down and she puts the plans to the Death Star inside of him and she sends this message to the, one of the last of the Jedi warriors, Obi-Wan Kenobi. And after she does that, she closes it up and she says, help me, Obi-Wan. Help me, you're my only hope. Well, as you and I transitioned back from that galaxy far, far away a long time ago, we have to come back and we have to live on planet Earth in 2020. And as we do so, we face issues of the demonic and disease and death. But here's what I want us to remember. Let's never, ever lose our hope in Jesus because he's the one. He's the one who has the power to fix what's wrong with us and the broken, tattered world that we live in. Let me pray for us, and then Aaron and the team are going to come back up. Father, we need your grace. We thank you for your love. And we ask you to manifest your power in all of those places today, Lord, where we desperately need it, because Jesus and Jesus alone is our only hope. We pray this prayer in his name and for our sake.